Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 3. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. We find ourselves dealing with the second half of this story recorded for us in Acts chapter 3, pertaining to the lame man who was healed as he sat at the temple gate begging for, for alms. As is our custom, I'm just going to read the, the portion of text that we're really going to be focusing on this morning. I'm going to read that first, and then we will pray. We'll ask the Holy Spirit to, to help us to illuminate the text before us, and then we will we'll get to work. So in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, Peter preaching to the crowd that is amazed at the lame man's miraculous healing. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send, notice this, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then the very last verse here, verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Father, as we encounter this second sermon of Peter's here in the book of Acts. Lord, help us to fully understand that ignorance, that the idea of ignorance is a myth. Help us, Lord, as we encounter this sermon here by the Apostle Peter to know that you have revealed yourself from heaven and there is no one with a legitimate excuse that will be able to stand on the day of judgment. And beyond that, Lord, help us to see that it is only from your son's presence that any of us will receive refreshing and blessing. We pray that your spirit would open our minds to understand and give us courage, the courage of faith to believe and to obey. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1987, there was a man named Jim Dixon who tried something remarkable. He sailed a small uh, 28-foot cruiser from Florida, from off the coast of Florida, to Bermuda. Now, as you hear that, you might think to yourself, that's not all that remarkable to do in 1987 because, after all, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. This is something that's been done for hundreds, thousands of years now, sailing from point A to point B. What made it remarkable was that Mr. Dixon did it solo. Again, you're thinking to yourself, not that big of a deal. Lots of people sail solo. He did it solo, and he did it blind. His goal was to be the first man to cross the Atlantic sailing in a sailboat blind. That's right. He couldn't see. He got lost We can excuse him for that because he was blind. But he did, in fact, achieve something unique for 1987. He sailed from Florida to Bermuda. 
commentators reflecting on this at the time had all sorts of different opinions. One commentator in particular disapproved of the venture, disapproved of the attempt on the ground that, quote, there is no point to a blind man sailing. That was his introductory sentence. There is no point to a blind man sailing. He went on in his particular column to suggest that if you cannot see the water and the skies, if you cannot see where you are going in a sailboat in the first place, then whatever else you may be doing, you are not actually sailing. Sailing, he goes on, is an experience that simply is not accessible to the blind. Dixon, Mr. Jim Dixon, he may think that he is sailing using instruments to substitute for sight, but that is self-delusion, an exercise in false consciousness. Those are some pretty stinging words. Blind men sailing to Bermuda? Come on, let's get real. That is a false reality. That is a man living with self-delusion. That is a man engaging in the impossible. He might as well have just said it didn't happen, except for one little fact. There was a man named Jim Dixon who was blind, who left from the coast of Florida in a sailboat, as attested by all his friends and family, and he landed in Bermuda. Whatever else you might want to say about it, the man was on a sailboat with a sail, and he went from A to B sailing sort of an unavoidable reality. But this particular commentator would suggest that it was impossible, that it didn't happen, and he disapproves of it entirely. The problem here is that this particular commentator is saying essentially to all those who are willing to give him the time of day that a person with a diminished sense, a diminished perception is not capable of having the same experience as the rest of us. And therefore, if he has a diminished experience, why, by golly, that's an experience not worth having at all. Fair enough. But to say that it didn't happen is to engage in a sort of cognitive dissonance, a logical incoherence. When we see this account in the book of Acts, we're tempted to excuse this crowd. A lame man is healed. The crowd comes rushing together. Peter is careful to point out, it isn't by our own piety or power that we healed this man. And he makes this statement in verse 17, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. And so did your rulers. And when we read that statement, we're tempted to think, just on our first pass through, that what Peter is suggesting is that these people can be excused for murdering the Son of God on the basis that they did not fully understand what it was that they were doing. You might suggest that what Peter is saying is you had a diminished understanding, you had a diminished perception and therefore, the experience of what was taking place was not the same as what it actually was. Indeed, this is an argument that they will make later on in chapter 4. It's not all that different from the argument that you and I hear made today. Atheists say we cannot experience God as we see him portrayed in this so-called holy book of yours. And agnostics will say the same thing. 
There's just not enough evidence to conclude. I can't know one way or the other. So wherever in that camp you find yourself, understand this. What Peter is saying disallows for that type of possibility. Let's pick it up here. He makes it tail end of verse 16. He concludes with what has happened to this man. He says, his, and by his name, faith in his name, he, Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. He summarized what has taken place. They've seen it with their own eyes. They've concluded, perhaps wrongly, that it's Peter who did the miracle. The miracle was worked through Peter, but Peter is very careful to say, the miracle that you saw performed did not, was not done by me. It wasn't by my own piety, that is, his own godliness or his own commitment to God the Father, and it wasn't done by his own power, it came about as a result of the name Jesus. And the crowd that is gathered there hearing that, we've heard that name before. In fact, not that long ago, we just killed a man outside the city of Jerusalem bearing the name Jesus. They know who he's talking about. He knows who he's talking about. And his statement is, this guy that you killed, he has healed the lame man. Next sentence. They're thinking, oh, okay, here we go again, this Jesus character. And again, you will probably have within this crowd people who are saying, this did not happen, this is not real, or you will have people saying, perhaps Jesus is God, but you know what, just looking at all the evidence that's there, there's just not enough to form an opinion. I'm going to firmly place myself in the agnostic camp. Peter says, I know you acted in ignorance. You and I, reading this through on his first pass, we're going to say, you know what, he's giving them a pass. It's okay that you killed a man because you didn't really know he was God. Does that sound like something any moral person would say? It's all right that you murdered an innocent man because you didn't know he was God. No, absolutely not. That is not what Peter is saying. There is no way we can draw that conclusion. In fact, just the opposite if we're willing to look at this passage in the light of other scriptures within the Bible. The Bible does not present ignorance as a legitimate excuse for immoral conduct. The Bible does not present ignorance as a justifiable position for anyone to be in at all. You are not called to be ignorant. The expression, ignorance is bliss, is a foreign concept as far as God is concerned. If you find yourself in a place lacking knowledge, the scriptures over and over and over again say, come to me, you who are simple, and I will teach you wisdom. In the book of James, that's Proverbs. In the book of James, James says, if any of you is lacking understanding, let him come to the Father and pray, and he will give him wisdom. Over and over again, the scriptures are saying, yes, we do lack knowledge. Yes, we are simple-minded sometimes in our understanding of the world, but just because that's how we find ourselves, that is never how we are permitted to remain. God desires that we come and draw near to him and hear from him. They're sitting here saying, well, I don't know what really happened, so I, you know, I don't know. Okay, this guy's healed, cool, but Jesus, I, you know, I don't know. And Peter's statement is, you acted in ignorance. It's not an excuse. It's actually a further condemnation. A couple of passages that make this really clear to us. Don't flip there. Just listen. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians 4.18, talking about lost Gentiles, he says, they are darkened in their understanding, and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. That's Ephesians 4.18. And he writes a similar passage 
in Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is making it clear his displeasure. They know it, but, Paul goes on, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Same author, two different books. Ephesians 4, Romans 1, you put them together, and here's what we know. Ignorance keeps you from God. It keeps you from God because you need to know something about God to draw closer to God. But the reason for your ignorance is the hardness of your own heart and your preference for unrighteous behavior. Peter himself, and he's the one preaching here, Peter himself says in 1 Peter 1.14, writing to the church that's scattered abroad, the diaspora, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Again, that's a critical comment regarding ignorance. Don't go with how your life was before you knew better. He says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. We're we're hearing these statements, and we're hearing this, and we're thinking to ourselves, you know, ignorance is bad, but people are just trapped in it. It's as though you can't escape it, as though, you know what, perhaps somebody isn't fully responsible for the fact that they're ignorant. And again, the book of Acts, the early church refused to accept that as a legitimate possibility. In a couple of years' time, when we get to chapter 17, we're going to encounter the apostle Paul preaching in Athens, and listen to what he says. Speaking to those who are are on Mars Hill there in Athens. He says, regarding man, regarding God, he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, he puts you where you are. He puts you in the country you live in. He gave you the parents that he gave you. He puts you in the period of time and history in which you are. He gave all of this to you. He assigned you your life. He's created you, and here you are, that you should seek God and perhaps feel your way toward him and find him. The purpose for where you are born, who you are born to, the purpose in the position in which you find yourself in history, God has so uniquely appointed it that you have the opportunity right where you are, regardless of where you are, whether you're born in Canada, whether you're born in Afghanistan, does not matter. He has so orchestrated the boundaries and the seasons of our lives that through our experiences and through the circumstances in which we find ourselves, he is working to draw us to him. And our responsibility is that we might feel our way towards him and find him. And Paul goes on and he says, yet he is actually not far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and we have our own being. As even some of your own prophets have said, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. And here's his conclusion. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. 
But now, notice that. But now. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Whether you're talking about the Apostle Paul or whether you're talking about the Apostle Peter, they recognize that ignorance is a problem and the responsibility for the problem of ignorance is with us. It is not with him. Whether we look at the stars in the sky, as Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1, and we see from all that is made that there is a God in heaven, and we understand that his wrath is being revealed against all unrighteousness, or whether we take Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 17, and we understand that our lives and where we've been positioned in our parents and who we are, that God is using all of that to draw us closer to him. It's very clear that if we are ignorant, if our minds have not been expanded to contemplate the reality that there is a God and that he has created us and that we do need reconciliation with him, the responsibility for that shortcoming is on us. It is not on him. There is a change in the Christian's life in terms of the relationship that they have with the truth. I should say that there's a relationship change that has taken place in which truth has gotten a hold of Christians. A number of years ago, she, she passed away, I think about 10 years ago, but I was watching a video not too long ago on YouTube of the late Madeline Murray O'Hare. You probably recognize that name. She is the atheist in the United States, the, the famous atheist that uh, launched a court case and, and was able to get prayer banned from the public school system. And of course, she was very ardent, very outspoken atheist, very adamant in her beliefs. I saw this video on YouTube. Uh, I'm guessing there was no biographical information. I'm not sure where or when this interview was was conducted, I'm guessing late 70s, early 80s, based on the enormous hair and the the style of clothing that was being worn. And uh, she was asked the question, you know, how do you know that there is no God? How can you be certain that that is the truth? And she made this response. She said, truth is not the goal. She goes on to say, there is no truth. And the interviewer in 1980, give or take, is so stunned by this assertion, she's just floored. She's like, no truth, no truth. How can you say that, that there's no truth? There's truth. There has to be truth. And Madeline Murray O'Hare's comment is, I determined that there was no truth when I looked at all of the injustices in the world around us. She starts off with Nazism and the Holocaust. She says, you have a philosophy, a group of people murdering six million Jews She says, how can anyone agree to that? Obviously, they believed it. That was their truth. But it is a horrible injustice, she says. She gives another example. Roman Catholics and the Inquisition. She says, I considered the fact that thousands and perhaps tens of thousands of people were executed brutally during the Inquisition, during the Protestant Reformation, by Roman Catholics, And this is when I concluded, there is no God because there is no truth. Now step back for a second and understand the absurdity of that. She is saying that the Holocaust was wrong. I agree with her. And she is also saying that murdering people who might have a slightly different religious belief, Protestants and Catholics, that that is wrong. I agree with her. And her conclusion then is because we see wrong A and wrong B being perpetuated in the world, therefore 
We all can just believe whatever we want, and there is no truth. But if you were listening to her from the very get-go, she declared that wrong A, the Holocaust, and wrong B, the Inquisition, were wrong, which means she is affirming something that is true. You see, she's affirming truth in order to deny truth. That is a logically incoherent position. There is a cognitive dissonance that is taking place. She is engaging in willful ignorance. She knows there's a truth if she's willing to be honest with herself. She knows it because she does not want that truth, because she does not want to accept that truth, she engages in intellectual dishonesty, which the Bible calls ignorance. She is narrowing her mind, narrowing the field of what is possible on purpose in order to avoid the consequences of what might be if she were to accept the reality of God. That's exactly what Peter is slamming here. You say, how can you know that? Today is playoff Sunday. There are four teams that are going to be competing today, one for the NFC championship, one for the AFC championship. You know who's not playing? Shh, next year, my friends. Hope springs eternal. Optimism. Anyway, last year, and I mentioned this at Christmas last year, there was a fellow that scored a touchdown in an NFL football game. I can't remember now who he was or what team he even played for. It's, it's lost on me. But I mentioned this to you last year. He was running down the field as a receiver, and his quarterback threw him the ball, and he caught the ball, and he rolled into the end zone. It was an amazing play. It was an amazing catch. And all the cameras zoomed in on him as he jumped up, and his teammates come up, and they're all patting him on the back, and they're celebrating. And he lifts up his jersey, and he pulls down his uh, white undershirt. And on his white undershirt is written the phrase, that's what I'm talking about. And I remember last year in playoff season, I read that and I thought, huh, you know, I don't really know what he's talking about because I don't remember him ever talking about doing that exactly. And of course, he'd made some really ambiguous statement the week before. He's like, you know, I'm going to do great in the game on Sunday. Okay, that's wonderful. You know, that's just great. But we have here in this particular text, God's version of what he's talking about. Okay. Peter says the times of ignorance that you engaged in make you responsible, even more so, because there's no reason for you to be ignorant. Look at how he explains this. Verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He goes on to exhort them to repent and jump down a little bit to verse 20, I believe it's verse 22. Look at this, verse 22, Moses, he's going to quote Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. He goes on, he says, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now that is almost a word-for-word quote of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses giving final instructions to the nation of Israel. 
He goes on and he quotes another verse. He says, you are the sons, uh, sorry, verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, all the prophets proclaimed these days. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham. And now he's going to quote Genesis chapter 12. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What Peter is saying to them is, you acted in ignorance with your rulers, but what you did is exactly what God has been talking about. He prophesied that this would happen. He told you there was a guy who was going to come. We have prophecies in the book of Moses. We have prophecies in the book of Genesis. We have all the prophets who have said all of this. This guy playing last year for this NFL team, he catches a football, he rolls into the, t- into the end zone, he scores a touchdown, he's like, yay, way to go. He says, that's what I'm talking about. But he didn't actually tell us that that's what he was going to do. Now, if he had pulled up his jersey and pulled down his undershirt, and his undershirt had said, they're going to be in two-man cover. I'm going to be going up against an all-star cornerback. I'm going to juke right. He's going to buy it because of how impressive my fake is. I'm going to turn left in field. I'm going to blitz across. The quarterback is going to time it just so. I'm going to go up into triple coverage with the safety and the, other, the two safeties converging on me. And despite that, I'm going to catch that ball. I'm going to muscle it out of their hands. And in a feat of glory and excellence that no one can stop, I will then tumble into the end zone. If his shirt had said all of that, then he could write at the bottom, that's what I'm talking about. Amen? That's what God is talking about. You acted in ignorance. Guess what? There's no reason for that. You closed your mind. You narrowed your perspective. You shut yourself off to certain possibilities. But this is what God has been talking about. So, this word, ignorance, Greek word is Agnaeo. Do you know what English word we get from that? Agnostic. The Bible is saying to you and me and anyone who would listen, if you think for one second that there's not enough evidence, that there's not enough data, that you just can't know one way or the other whether or not Jesus is real. Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts tells you that's not a legitimate possibility because this is what God has been talking about. You're sitting here today, you're thinking, okay, it's true. All sickness and all disease is a result of sin, the curse. This man was supernaturally healed Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I freely give in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He gets up, he walks. The crowd rushes to it. Peter says, it's not my piety, it's not my godliness, it's not my power, I didn't do this. The name of Jesus. Okay, here we go again. Jesus, I just can't know. I don't know, I don't know. Ignorance is no excuse. Okay. You can say you rebelled against God. You can say you rejected God, but you can never say that you didn't know because you did. Hearing that, perhaps you're asking the question, what do I have to do? What's the step for me to get right with God? 
And that's the question that Peter now answers. Look at what he says. Verse 19. Repent. Repent, therefore. And turn again. In order that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus. Jesus. The name that we've been naming. The man that you murdered outside of Jerusalem. The guy that we've been talking about, this is the name that healed the lame man just a moment ago. He's the one that's going to come for you. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until a time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter's answer there is really clear. Leave it to the church to make salvation confusing. Leave it to the word of God to make it very, very clear. I remember when I was a small child uh, attending church. I was probably uh, grade five or grade six. There was a strong emphasis at that time on believing that Jesus is God. When you're a child, that's an easy thing to do. And the scriptures affirm that. You have to have faith like a child. But you also believe other things when you're a child, like Santa Claus is real. When you lose a tooth, there's this fairy-type creature that comes in the night and gives you money in exchange for it. It's easy to believe things as a child when you don't know the difference. Oftentimes, what I hear adults saying is that they were saved when they believed that Jesus was real. They accepted him as a savior but they did not fully yield to him as Lord until much later in life. And I hear this statement, I was saved when I was five, I accepted Jesus as a savior when I was five, I submitted to him as Lord when I was 25. And don't misunderstand me, I think it's important for our children to know about Christ, I think it's important for them to be taught the Bible stories I think it's important that we are always pressing our children to know because ignorance is not acceptable in God's eyes. If you're hearing me say, oh, like we shouldn't you know, press these things in on our children, you're missing the point of the text and you're missing the point of my sermon. Ignorance is not bliss. They do need to know. But as ignorance is not bliss for them, ignorance is not bliss for you and me either as parents. Knowing that Jesus was a historical person, knowing that he's real, even knowing that he's the Son of God, does not in and of itself result in salvation. Now, Peter wants these people to be saved, no doubt. But we need to understand, salvation isn't a simple matter of faith, knowing some historical facts. It's a matter of repentance, and it's a matter of turning again. Within this passage here in Acts chapter 3, 
we see three words that are used interchangeably. Faith, repentance, and turning again. Faith, meaning you're placing your hope in Jesus. Repentance, literally that you are changing your mind. Meta noeo, to have a change of mind, a change of thought. And turning. The way that Peter uses that is you're walking in this direction and you stop and you turn and you go in a different direction. If you want seasons of refreshing in your life, if you want the blessing of God in your life, we cannot talk about it as though it is simply a matter of thinking that God, that Jesus is God. Yes, that's a part of it. We are called to love the Lord our God, as Jesus says in Matthew, with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds. Our faith is not a dumb faith. There is an intellectual component. We are called to worship the Lord with our minds. But we can't stop there. If we would be blessed by God, if we would be refreshed by the presence of the Lord, if we would be saved, we know he is God. And as Peter calls upon these guys here, removing your ignorance and being informed of the truth, repent. Change your mind and turn your walk. There is no Savior without the Lord. Because what salvation consists of is a desire to be with the Lord. Notice what he says. Go back to the text. Repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Have you ever heard the expression, everybody wants to go to heaven, they just don't want to go right now? I'm sure you thought that a time or two. I know I have. That reveals something dangerous, though, in our relationship with Christ. Why wouldn't we want to be with him? It could be that we don't fully understand the gospel. We don't fully understand the nature of grace. We don't understand all that we've been forgiven of. Or it could be that we do, and we're still living in rebellion, and we enjoy our sin more than we enjoy the refreshing and the blessing that can come from Jesus Christ. We think that the things of this world are more enjoyable and more delightful than Jesus. But Peter says it's not the case. The real refreshing comes from Christ. And notice how he, send, how he ends it. He says that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God has spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. They just saw a man, lame, rise up and walk. They just saw a miraculous healing. And in their minds, they're thinking, this is fantastic, this is wonderful. Undoubtedly, there are people there in that crowd who are experiencing some sort of illness, some sort of disease. Surely this lame man is not the only sick person there on that day outside the temple. 
And yet Peter, as he's preaching the good news of Jesus, he makes it very clear that healing comes, restoration is possible, that you can be blessed and you can be refreshed in Jesus, and that the healing that undoubtedly some of you are interested in and looking for, it comes to you when Jesus comes, that God may send his son appointed for you. Peter does not offer a magical formula if you incant this or you say that prayer or you hold on to this lucky talisman rabbit's foot. There is no magical formula. There is no charm. There's no spell. It is Christ who heals. And as Peter has performed this miracle of healing, as he is seeking to address the concerns of the crowd, he makes it very clear it is repentance, it is a desire to be with the Lord, and that healing and restoration comes when heaven sends forth the Christ appointed for you. As we close this morning, that is our hope. Jesus was crucified he conquered death and he is waiting to conquer it in eternity for all of us who have hoped in him we live in a day and age in which people engage in debate back and forth political rhetoric one side offers a set of facts as a means to a potential solution another side offers what they call counterfacts or alternative facts and the debate is endless different individuals arguing back and forth back and forth you know, as I was hearing all of this, I was reflecting upon the book of Revelation over the months of December. When Jesus returns, when he comes, there will be no political debate. Do you understand that? When Christ comes, we will not tweet about it. We will not argue about it. We will not go back and forth and say, well, what do you think this means? Or could it be something else entirely? In this day and age, when a bomb explodes, a knife man attacks, a gunman goes into a school and shoots, the political discussion goes every which direction. But when Christ comes back, the moment of his revelation and the meaning that it has for all of us will be one and the same. Both moment and meaning, both act and its interpretation will be instantly clear. And as Paul writes in the book of Philippians, every knee will bend. Every tongue will confess because Jesus has come. Every injustice will be righted. Every disease will be healed. The fortunes of those who have hoped in Christ will be restored. And nothing that is wicked or evil will be permitted to continue. Peter's statement here is that Christ is coming. In the same way that commentators can reflect on the reality of whether or not a man sailing a sailboat is really sailing, this is happening. And we can rejoice in it. And our prayer as we go forth from this place in 2019 to be bold is that we would find others who could rejoice in it as well.
Pray with me, church. Father, we say thank you for your word and its clarity. We do want seasons of refreshing. We do want to be blessed. Lord, I pray that we would never engage in the idolatry of seeking blessing or refreshing apart from your presence, but that we would know that everything we ever wanted was in you, that contentment was in your son. I pray, Father, that as we leave this place this morning, we will no longer look upon ignorance as a legitimate excuse, that we would be challenged ourselves not to remain in ignorance regarding you or what your word says, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would fire the convictions of our souls, that we would not allow our friends to stand in ignorance as a legitimate option. Our prayer, Father, is that you would help us to be bold, to be loving, to be gracious, but to be truthful. Lord, make us a people that enjoy refreshing from your presence and want others to partake in that as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.